Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, President Trump's top deputies deliver a blunt message to the party faithful. The Republicans are winning the fight, and it is a fight. And with Moonlight nominated for eight Academy Awards this weekend, a conversation with its director about making sense of the world you come from and what it means to leave it behind. It's Friday, February 24th. All right, uh, CPAC is known for having important moments. And I think it's safe to say by a full room uh, that this is one of those moments. <laughs> On Thursday afternoon, inside a convention hall just outside of Washington, the two most powerful advisors to President Trump walked onto a stage and settled into a pair of chairs. And I, I think the first thing that would be appropriate after 30 days of running a continual sprint, is to thank these two guys for what they've been doing. Steve Bannon and Reince Priebus. One embodies the right-wing populism that brought Trump to power. The other, the Republican establishment that Trump is now disrupting. Let me ask each one of you, what's the biggest misconception about what's going on in the Donald Trump White House? Well, in regard to us two, I think the biggest misconception is everything that you're reading. Jonathan Martin has covered the inside story of both political parties for years. Hey there, Jonathan. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. So a year ago, probably the least controversial thing that you could possibly say was that conservatism was divided because it very clearly was. There were 16 people running against each other for the Republican nomination. It was incredibly divisive. And a year later, we are hearing a message on stage. Donald Trump, President Trump, brought together the party and the conservative movement. And I've got to tell you, if the party and the conservative movement are together, similar to Steve and I, it can't be stopped. That there is unity within this conservative world. And the message was that Donald Trump created that unity. He was the one person that was able to bring this, this party and this movement together. Is that true? No. <laughs> Why not? Um, he's the president of the United States, so I think there has been a rallying effect to him among many in his party, but he, he does not have unity across the board. In fact, 
to an almost unheard of degree. People in his own party criticize him openly in ways that you just don't see in American politics. So I don't give a damn what the president of the United States wants to do or anybody else wants to do. We will not waterboard. We will not torture. You know, the more well-known critics like John McCain, who is very blunt, but even with um. You know, people like Senator McConnell, who will just say directly, I wish the president would stop tweeting so much. I've been pretty candid with him and with all of you that I'm not a great fan of daily tweets. Those kinds of critiques uh, delivered publicly typically don't happen within a party at this level of American politics. And um, Mm -hmm. on a policy level, Michael, there are still considerable divisions, trade, immigration, the role of America in the world. All those issues still divide the Republican Party. On Thursday, Steve Bannon articulated a vision for what he said this president's vision of conservatism is. You know, I've I've said that there's a new political order that's being formed out of this, and it's still being formed. And why he believes it stitches together all the different elements of conservatism. Um, We we have wide and sometimes divergent opinions, but I think the center core of what we believe that we're a nation with an economy, not an economy just in some global marketplace with open borders, but we are a nation with a, a culture and a, uh, and a reason for being. And I think that's what unites us. And, I think- and his argument is that what does bring those things all together is nationalism. Well, this is the great question, is, is that you know, Steve Bannon believes that in Donald Trump, he has found a sort of vehicle for what he has long wanted to do in terms of policy in this country. And I guess the reason I'm skeptical is because I just don't think that Trump is as deeply invested in these issues as Steve Bannon is. And, you know, President Trump has proven time and time again that, that what he cares uh, significantly about is the coverage and the perception mm-hmm. of him. And the great unanswered question of this presidency, uh, this young presidency, is when those two things come into conflict, Michael, this sort of nationalistic vision that Bannon has and President Trump's obsession with his own popularity, what side does he take? And I, we, I don't think we, we fully know the answer to that yet. Is there a example of that tension? I mean, I think the, the issue that comes to mind that I've been really struck by over the sound of silence is this question about what to do with the children of people who are in this country illegally. Uh, This is something that President Trump ran on. He said that, um, you know, they would deport these uh, individuals. And here we are over a month in, and he has not decided yet. And when he's been asked this question, he clearly struggles um, because he knows that the stories about taking this kind of action would be, uh, you know, let's say less than flattering. The audience at CPAC certainly responded positively to this message. We want you to have our back. How can can we argue with that one window into whether or not nationalism and the Trumpism of this moment is actually bringing together conservatives? Oh, I mean, look, look, I don't think there's any question that he is a powerful president, and he is nudging a lot of conservatives towards his and Steve Bannon's outlook. I don't question that at all. You can just just look at polling right now, and you see the Republican views on trade, much more skeptical now than they used to be. You know, Republican views on Vladimir Putin, much more favorable than they, they used to be. So you're absolutely right that he is nudging the party toward the sort of vision that he has. And I think presidents often do that. 
What is striking, though, is that there is still significant resistance among the elected officials in the party that is not dissipating. Which raises the, the really interesting question of whether or not Donald Trump is actually drawing together the disparate elements of the right, but he just hasn't brought along their elected leaders. Yeah, that's ex exactly right. And um, I had a conversation right before the inauguration with a couple smart conservatives about this, and they are sort of Trump-friendly. And what they said is that they were worried that Trump was a step ahead of the elected officials mm. and that and that Trump did not have an infrastructure, that, that he, he's so far ahead of where a lot of the sort of official wing of the party is that there's no think tanks. There, there's no caucus on the right. Hill. There's there's no white papers and research yes. reports. And this is the concern that um, while some of his voters like it, there's still deep reluctance among both the elected officials and some of the donors in the Republican Party for his views. We're so conditioned to it. I'm personally so conditioned to hearing about why President Trump isn't going to win the election. Why a controversy in the primary is going to take down President Trump. But it was when I went home and got out of this town and I went back to Kenosha and I talked to my neighbor and I said, Bob, what do you think? And he goes, man, I really love that Trump. And I said, Sandy, Sandy, what do you think? She says, we're for Trump. And it was, as you all lived through it too, because you all had different people you were for. And you kept running into people that you know, and what did they kept telling you? They kept telling you, Trump, Trump, Trump. And so, <laughs> so tomorrow, okay? President Trump will speak at CPAC on Friday. We'll be right back. It's go time. As in, now's the time to go open and fund a Fidelity IRA. By contributing up to the $6,000 maximum limit before the extended 2020 federal income tax deadline of May 17th, you could reduce your taxable income. So don't wait. Visit fidelity.com slash the daily to make a tax smart move today. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity does not provide tax advice. Consult a tax professional regarding your specific situation. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. The resonance of the movie Moonlight, the source of its acclaim, is in the intensely personal depiction of a young boy sorting out who he is while growing up poor, black, and gay in the Liberty City neighborhood of Miami. You ever see the way he walk? You watch his damn mouth. <laughs> you gonna tell him why the other boys kick his ass all the time? Huh? You gonna tell him? While it's a work of fiction, it's infused with the childhood memories of the man who made it, the director Barry Jenkins. He talked recently in Miami with my colleague Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's an investigative reporter who has herself been deeply informed in her writing by her past and where she's come from. You, like me, grew up like at the height of the crack epidemic. Exactly. And also at the height of movie making on the crack epidemic, right? Mm -hmm, New mm -hmm. Jack City, Menace Society, Boys in the Hood, mm -hmm. um, which were made right in the thick of all of this happening. And mm -hmm. so when you look at them, it's clear, right? How do you think the distance um, that you had in making this movie about that period shaped 
how this movie is different from those movies. It's funny. It wasn't until I was 23 or 24 that I realized I had a rough childhood. And air quotes, a rough childhood. Because um, you just normalize everything, you know? Most of my memory is about the normalcy of it hitting. I mean, there were there were songs people would play. There was a song called uh, Your Mama on Crack Rock. You remember that song? Of course. And and I was like, this not, not back then. I was like, oh, this is. I feel weird singing this song, you know. But everybody's singing it, so I got to sing it. And now I look back on it, and it horrifies me, you know. Um, so I think making the movie now um, and having this distance, um, I think it helped tremendously. It didn't affect the narrative. Like what's actually on the screen wasn't affected. I think the energy and uh, and and the the thought process, the approach to what went in, what ended up on the screen was different. So, one of the questions that that I get a lot, and I assume maybe you get it a lot, is kind of like, why you? What was it about your circumstance, about you internally, that allowed you to um, to go down a different path, despite what we know, most people who grew up in that circumstance, what their lives were like, what what was it? And is that a question that you've gotten a lot or that you think about? Yeah, yeah. I, I sometimes think about it, and when I do, I quickly move on to the next, the next subject because um, I think to come to an answer is to maybe arrive at something uh, that distinguish, distinguishes me from someone else and keeps you from the task of working to always, uh, you know, be good, you know, and, and do better. So, so I don't know. The only thing I can think of is that I was, I was never interested uh, in fitting in, you know. I was just totally cool and just sit on the side and kind of just watch people. Um, and, and, it's, and at a certain point, I think in that watching, I got to a place where I could just sort of manage uh, the world around me, and it kind of insulated me. Right. I mean, it seems like it's it's always a combination. There's something internally, um, but it's not clearly just that you had the will to will yourself out of the circumstance. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I think about my own life. I'm like, I did a lot of stupid shit. I didn't get caught doing most of it, so there mm -hmm. was a lot of luck. Mm -hmm. um, Same. And then there were folks who looked out for you. So who, who looked out for you? Um, who helped? change your course and how did you even end up thinking about yourself as someone who could make films yeah you know the biggest one was uh my grandma and she was the person who as i was growing up just told me consistently uh that i was special and she just stayed on me and one of the really cool things she would do is she would uh she loved to fish so she would take me out of the projects on the weekends to go fishing in the everglades or in the, the florida keys um, and then I would go back to school at Holmes Elementary, and I had this teacher in the third and fourth grade, this uh, this blonde Jewish woman from New York who moved to Miami because I, I guess she liked the nightlife. Uh, but she also she wanted to do good, so she taught at this elementary school um, in the hood. And when she found out my grandma was taking us on these trips on the weekends, she would have me write down what the trip was. She said, you know, look, Barry, you're the only person who's getting out of the neighborhood on the weekends so you should write your story down and share it with the other kids. And so between these two women, wow. this was, I, and I only realized it way later after the fact, this was this sort of thing of this reinforcement of that your voice is, is worth telling or, or the life you're living is something to take note of. So 
I developed that, which a lot of people say is a coldness, but I'm actually really warm on the inside. I just same, right. <laughs> same. I'm such a warm person. However, <laughs> yes, I'm like you will never know the emotions that I feel, um, but I feel them. But I think, I mean, for me, like uh, my dad was an alcoholic, so and he could get, you know, he had a lot of rage. So it was learning to study, right? That's how I became such an observer. Is I need to know his moods. Mm-hmm. I need to know like. Is he happy? How, you know, how drunk is he? Mm-hmm. Uh, do I need to get out of the way? Can I be in the room? Mm-hmm. And it seems like this is also what Chiron has to do with his mom. Who the hell you think you is? Huh? Yeah. That's what I thought. You gonna raise him? You gonna keep selling me rocks? Huh? And so... This gets to, you know, the difficult part of the interview, which is so much of, of this is about your mom and your relationship with your mom. Did you have to become that type of observer? It seems like when, when you have that type of dysfunction, also when you have to grow up faster than you should, um, and you have to learn to understand things that you probably shouldn't have to understand as a kid. Uh, I, I, I did, and, and yet I think my mom did uh, a great job, you know, as much as she could with, again, keeping some of those things um, away. So I didn't have to didn't have to dodge them. I think the flip side, though, is, you know, if you're a perceptive kid, a sharp kid, you start to notice things that are being hidden from you. At the same time, there were so many things that happened, you know, right in front of me, that happened right in front of kids who grew up this way um, that nobody tells you how to process. And so, again, you end up kind of like burying those things, you know. You know, like what types of things? Um, no, I mean there there were a few times where where I would see my mom out outside the house, um, and and not and not fully herself, you know, and and the the way you process it two ways. One, you go, who else is seeing this? You know, even as a kid, you go, who else is seeing this? And 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 then you have to reconcile that image uh, with the memory you have, you know, of this person, you know, fully together. All right. So when you say you're not bitter, is that true? Like, it is true. Really... I'm not. Not at all. To be bitter is to say that I was owed a better childhood. I was owed a better circumstance. And that's just not true. No? No. I, I mean, I'm, I'm here, you know? <laughs> I mean, right? You are here. And, and, and also, too, I, I understand what the world was like uh, when I was born. I don't blame any of these men or women who became addicted um, to this drug. It was it was not the perfect storm. Uh, it was uh, an undeniable storm of how all these things happened. So I definitely think of myself as a broken person, and I wonder, do you think of yourself that way too? Hey! Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, clearly. Clearly. You, you can't go—I'll acknowledge that. You can't go through those things um, and emerge fully intact, you know? How are you broken? Um— uh, you know, I, I often say that in the film, the main character is this guy who's wandering around feeling like he's unworthy of love, you know? Um, uh, and I think I went through that process um, very, very legitimately feeling like I was, you know, uh, unworthy of love. And you have to always, con- when, you, when you've ever felt that way and really believed it, you have to constantly do this work to remind yourself that that is not true. Barry Jenkins is nominated for Best Director at Sunday's Academy Awards. It's one of the eight Oscar nominations for his film. 
And Nicole Hannah-Jones just won a National Magazine Award for a Times Magazine piece she wrote about the difficult and personal choice of choosing a school for her daughter in a segregated city. Here's what else you need to know today. In Mexico on Thursday, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson sought to mend an increasingly strained relationship post-election. Although our two nations share a long history, our visit was forward-looking, focusing on common interests that would advance security and economic well-being. Back in the United States, the president complicated that message by telling business leaders that the U.S. would, in his words, no longer be treated unfairly by Mexico. In our meetings, we jointly acknowledged that in a relationship filled with vibrant colors, two strong sovereign countries from time to time will have differences. And the founder and chief executive of Uber is vowing to change the company amid mounting accounts of its cutthroat, male-dominated culture. The Times reported that an Uber manager groped a female coworker at a company retreat, that a director shouted a homophobic slur at a subordinate, and that a manager threatened to beat an underperforming worker with a baseball bat. Travis Kalanick, Uber's CEO, told employees he is determined to make the company a better place to work. What I can promise you, he told them, is that I will get better every day. The Daily is produced by Theo Balcom, Andy Mills, and Lisa Tobin, with support from Sam Dolnick. Samantha Hennig is our editorial director. Pedro Rosado is our studio manager. Our theme music is by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. Special thanks to Michaela Bouchard and Brita Green. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you on Monday. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com daily. netsuite.com daily.